0: But then shortly after graduating, the 2008 financial crisis hit. And so we saw our managers and directors, all the people that we kind of you know, looked up to that we thought had all this you know, experience and all that, you know, we saw them freaking out because you know, they're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars in their investment accounts.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss that keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Cornell Schreiber. Cornell, are you ready to rock? Let's do it. All right. So Cornell is the host of the Build Wealth Canada show and has been featured for paying off his mortgage in only six years while still in his 20s and becoming one of Canada's youngest retirees at the age of 32. He now runs a top personal finance and investing podcast created specifically for Canadians, as well as Canada's largest personal finance and investing conference. There, he interviews the top personal finance experts to share their best practices, tips, and tactics when it comes to investing in financial planning in Canada Cornell, congratulations on achieving what you have. There's a lot of people out there that wish that they could be, you know, have done what you've done. So I really admire you for that. And just take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life.
0: Sure. So our story is actually very intertwined with our worst investment mistake as well. So basically, straight out of university, my wife and I decided that we were going to just live off one of our salaries and use the other one to, at that point, either pay off the mortgage quicker or to save for retirement. But then shortly after graduating, the 2008 financial crisis hit. And so we saw our managers and directors, all the people that we kind of you know, looked up to that we thought had all this you know, experience and all that, you know, we saw them freaking out because you know, they're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars in their investment accounts. And so as young graduates, we didn't know much about investing in the public markets, and so we got completely scared off from the markets and decided to just go for the sure thing which was paying off our mortgage and so to date this was our biggest investing mistake that we sort of just you know got scared, let fear take control, kind of buried our heads in the sand and said let 's just pretty much ignore the stock market and let's just go for this sure thing of paying off our mortgage. I mean, you know, there is an upside to the story in that, you know, within the six years we had our mortgage fully paid off and you know, this is really rare in Canada. So we got featured in both of the major personal finance magazines, some large blogs and podcasts, and we were even featured in a book. So, you know, that was all great, but despite that nice milestone, it didn't take long for me to realize that we were actually now totally behind on saving for retirement. We had the mortgage paid off, but what about retirement? What about learning how to invest? And I couldn't really put off learning how to invest anymore, right? Because the money was still coming in. We were dual income. We were still saving over 50% of our income at that point. And so, you know, something had to be done. And so I started a podcast where I basically interviewed and, and I still continue to interview the top personal finance experts about how to best invest how to optimize your finances and basically how one can retire early through financial independence and so the podcast did really well it took off and you know it's now basically the top personal finance and investing podcast in Canada The build with Canada show like you mentioned. And so then after following the advice of these experts, along with our own research, we eventually became one of Canada's youngest retirees at 32. And at that point, we basically both quit our jobs. My wife fully retired. She's now a full-time stay-at-home mom. I transitioned to semi-retirement. I got, had a, got an opportunity to come up. And was, it's also a lot less stressful to go from, you know, you're used to dual income. And all of a sudden, it's like zero income. You know, even though all the model financial models say you can do it, even though the financial planners that I, I had two financial planners look at our Members as well as myself, analyzing, they all said we're fine, but still, it's pretty, you know, nerve-wracking, right? And and then opportunities came up, so I just did semi-retirement. I did that for two years, and then I tried to do a full retirement. So I did do a full retirement, but that only lasted about six months, just due to lack of, you know, just due to boredom and lack of fulfillment. <laughs> so you know, as a I'm 35 now, right? So as someone in their mid 30s, to all of a sudden, you know, you're not contributing, you're watching Netflix. I mean, that gets boring really, really fast. And so I, I felt like I had to do something. So I actually jumped back to semi-retirement, which my friends just still make fun of me for because they're just like, you know, <laughs> living this retirement, semi-retirement. But so now I basically continue to run the Build With Canada podcast because there's always something more to learn, right? Always more things I try to optimize and then I share my lessons with others so they can benefit. And then like you said, I recently took over the Canadian Financial Summit, which is sort of the new project you know, that I have now, which is Canada's largest conference for optimizing your investing and personal finances. So that's basically the the story in a nutshell.
1: And what, let me ask a question about the mortgage. What was the rate that you were paying on that mortgage?
0: Oh, I don't remember. It was, this was a while ago now, but I mean, it was, yeah, I don't remember the exact amount, but I mean, it was variable, you know, shopped around a lot. So it was kind of the lowest variable rate we could get at the time. Uh, So we sort of took on that interest rate risk of maybe going up and we just pumped as much money as we could into it. I made sure that the prepayment privileges were very, very generous. So we were able to just, you know, put a lot into it, you know, but yeah, I mean, mortgage rates are at historical lows, right? At least, you know, here in Canada, they were low then, uh, you know, as well, they're low now. And so that's kind of one thing that we were fortunate about.
1: So how would you list or what are the lessons that you learned from this?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the I would say a, a big mistake, the, the mistake really was that what we should have done is... When that financial crisis hit, I mean, you know, it hit bottom eventually. That was a really good time to actually invest. And that's when I should have, like right now I'm a full-blown, you know, DIY index investor. And that's what I should have focused on and on that instead, right? Because we would have still had the capital appreciation through the property, but we could have been investing and we could have rode that, you know, the market recovery all the way up, right? We were putting in a lot of money into the mortgage. We could have put that in the markets instead and would have gotten a much higher return while still enjoying the appreciation of the house. So that was, you know, the really, really big lesson was that we let, or, you know, it was primarily me. I mean, I let fee drive my decision instead of learning more about it. I just kind of went for that safe and secure thing, even though that was financially not the most optimum thing. And I mean, we would have become financially independent quicker if I invested that money instead, because as you know, the market did very, very well. Mm-hmm. You know, and our net worth would have been noticeably higher as well. So I am kicking myself for that sort of now, you know, but things still worked out in the end. So it's not this doom and gloom nope. story. But I think there's an important lesson there about letting fear drive decisions and kind of seeking this just safety and security at all costs because the opportunity cost can actually be very high.
1: Got it. So let me talk about like, what I got from that. There's some interesting things that it makes me think about. The first thing is that you know, when we think about business, let's just talk about business for a moment. What is the job of business? The job of business is to raise money either through equity investors or through borrowing money, let's say, from the banks And we can look at the average cost of that money and let's just say that it costs 15% to raise that money. Okay, what is the purpose of a business? The business is to take an idea that somebody has and invest that money in the idea and try to earn a return above 15%. Now, if you could earn a 20% return on your business, it would be awesome. You would be earning a 20% return on your business and the cost of money that you've raised in your business is 15%, you're creating value of that 5%. Now, of course, if you could bring your 15% down to 10%, now, if nothing changes on your investment side, you're now earning 20% and your cost of money is 10%. And so that's pretty amazing. Now you've gained you know, a 10% value added, the value creation that you've got. Well. Investing in the stock market and handling our own personal finances is no different. If you go to a a credit card and you borrow money at 15% and you invest it at 10%, you're destroying 5% of value. But if you could go out today and borrow money at 5% and invest it at just 10%, you'd be creating 5% in value. I think part of what the lesson that, that we're reminded of is that governments, banks, and others do a lot to try to make sure that mortgage lending is a very low cost form of funding for an individual. And right now it's at you know, ultra low levels. And so what we must say is that generally debt is bad, but super low levels of debt could be actually very beneficial because you could borrow that money rather than buying that house with cash, use the cash that you have, invest in other things and so I think the lesson really is what's your cost of money and what is your return on that money and thinking of course not in a one-year time frame but over a five or a ten year time frame and what you've explained through your story is that it's probably worth it to get that money at a low cost and keep that money in your overall mix of funding and then use other money that you have to invest in the market would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, in our case, we the, definitely, the rates that we were getting on the mortgage was a historical lows, like I said. And so, the, the percentage by paying it off, it's like we're getting this guaranteed rate of return, but it's very, very low, right? Because we're not, you know, we're decreasing our debt. But the markets historically have performed way above that, right? And so, like you said, yes, that getting rid of the debt was a very good peace of mind. It was great, you know, to have that off there. It was great to see that balance go down. But then you also have to think of the opportunity cost, right? Of okay, well, I could have instead put that money in the markets and it would have grown, it would have far you know, exceeded what that interest payments were that I was paying, and so it would have you know would have been a much better deal to do that. Yeah, so I, I think you, yeah, I think you explained it really well how there is this sort of opportunity where you can get money really cheaply to borrow, and you can invest at a higher rate. I mean, that can financially that is the better option, right? Unfortunately, there is that whole emotional component that can come into play too, right? And so, yep. that's my
1: second takeaway is that. After interviewing so many people, I have come up with six common mistakes that people make. And the third most common mistake is they were driven by emotion or flawed thinking. And you right. know, this is a, a great example for the listeners to understand how emotion and also flawed thinking about it. Now, the other thing, of course, sometimes our biggest strength becomes our weakness and our weakness becomes our strength. In other words, if you hadn't have paid off that mortgage, you may not have gotten all the opportunities that you've gotten because of the press you got from doing it. But also, if you, had, if you had not paid off that mortgage, it's very possible that because you were potentially at that time driven by emotion and flawed thinking, that you may not have actually put the money in the market at that time because you would have read the newspapers, you would have thought, oh, it could get worse. A lot of people feel as though They could have or would have invested in the market, but in fact, at the bottom of the market is the hardest time to invest. So that's just another angle.
0: That's a good point. That's right. Because now I can sort of speculate as, oh, here's what I would have done back then. But I mean, who knows, right? I was fresh out of university, right? I was, you know, you're right. There is that whole other component where once I got into it, maybe I would have done you know, not not the best thing. Maybe I would have started, you know, speculating in stocks and doing mm-hmm. it wrong instead of just index investing, for example, or something like that. Yep. So, and this is uh,
1: yeah a good example of hindsight bias. One of the many sure, true. biases that we look back and we think, yeah, if I had done this, I would have done that. But in fact, you know, that's all. Hindsight is twenty twenty, as we say. All right. Well, mm-hmm. based upon what you've learned from this story, and I know you've been learning a lot more. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering that same fate? They're sitting there debating about their mortgage loan and what they should do and all of that stuff. You've already been through it. What one action would you recommend that
0: they do? Sure. So, I mean, you know, in our case, it was sort of that mortgage versus investing dilemma, right? And that was a mistake. But I think it translates to other things as well. So, while we had that mortgage issue, the problem that I see a lot of people going with right now is, we kind of took the easy way out, right? Instead of learning about the markets, instead of figuring how to do it, let's just pay off the mortgage, it's easier, it's simple, let's do that. These days, I see a lot of people not even consider becoming do-it-yourself investors. Like I said, I'm a do-it-yourself index investor and you know they might just think this is too complicated. I didn't go to business school. I'm not gonna do it. And so they just hand money over to a professional and I'll put that sort of in air quotes, right? Mm-hmm. That they just trust to take care of everything, right? So it's the same kind of thing where, you're just like I'm going to keep doing this. I'm not going to learn much about it. I'm just going to put it in. That person will take care of everything, you know. But really, I don't know. You know, in the U.S., I'm not sure what your how high your fees are, but we have some of the highest fees in Canada when it comes to you know mutual funds, for example. And so the costs for a Canadian can easily be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of their lifetime, just because these fees are so high. And so, you know, if there's one takeaway I have for the listeners is sort of don't take this fear approach. Don't take this ignorance is bliss approach. Instead, I would say, I would encourage you to at least learn about doing yourself investing, especially doing yourself index investing. See if maybe that is something that you can do. Cause I really, truly believe a lot of people can. And, you know, even if it takes you, let's say a week to learn the fundamentals so that you can learn it yourself, it's easier now to do more than ever. And I don't sell investments, right? So I don't have any like, you know, horse in the race of, <laughs> you know, trying to sell your business, but just, you know, you could, like if it's, like I said, the savings can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on how much you invest. If you spend a week learning how to do it, I mean, that's the highest you'll get paid on a per hour basis, probably in your life, right? So it is worth doing. So don't just take this easy way out of, I'm going to give this money to a professional that my parents recommended or that my coworker is using, and then just put blinders on and let them deal with it because you could be paying those really high fees. So I would say, you know, you don't have to be some professional, you know, elite stock trader or anything like that. But, you know, you do want to look into this, I think for sure. And I wrote a book for that.
1: And oh, yeah? I wrote it for my five nieces because none of them I knew, you know, I could see that they weren't necessarily interested in finance and investing, but I also knew that they had to figure out how to start building their wealth. And so at age 18, I gave each of them $3,000 And the content of this book, which at that time was, you know, a lot of notes and slides and charts and graphs that I tried to explain to them. And they were like, what? Uncle Andrew, I don't understand. But what they did understand is opening up an account, putting the money in and starting to invest it. And they, you know, had that. And so I wrote, wrote a book called how to start building your wealth investing in the stock market. And it really is do it yourself. And the objective really was to help them figure out how to navigate and how to take my nearly three decades of experience in the institutional finance market and bring it down to as simple as I could possibly make it. So I'm, I'm all behind what you're saying about do it yourself for the people that are willing to put in just a little bit of time between my book and many others that are out there. There are some great books that can really just step you through. And you know, some people may listen and they'd be shocked to hear what you said. Well, you'd have to put aside about a week of study and I am thinking, Some people are going like, what? But on the other hand, I would argue that actually it has become much more simple. And in the world of finance, it's different from many other worlds where, you know, the more you know doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to do better with it. So what's critical is understanding the foundations and then to, you know, get started in a small way and you'll learn a lot in a very short amount of time.
0: That's right. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's the reason I say a week, I mean, there's obviously more, you know, to learn than that, but there are products out there now where you can just get those bases covered in a week of learning. For example, you know, the asset allocation ETFs, right? I know Vanguard has some really popular ones, for instance, you know, we hear about these a lot now where you're just buying one ETF and you get representation, international representation, right? Of of the stock market, with companies all over the world, for example. So you don't need to learn how to pick individual ETFs for this segment and this industry and things like that. You don't have to learn how to analyze balance sheets and income statements, you know, and read companies' you know, financial reports. You know, yeah, if you want to learn all that, then yeah, that's going to take you way more than a week, right? But if you're just looking for those fundamentals, you know, there are some of these products out there now that make it so easy to do and to sort of get your foot in the door and not pay these high fees. And I think they're just, they need to be considered as a really, really good starting point.
1: Definitely. And, you know, I think that, what I, people always ask me, what, what do I do about this and that? And what do I do about this and that? And I always say, look, call me when you got a hundred thousand dollars invested yeah. in one of these super safe, let's just say nothing is ultimately safe, but you could say super diversified, long-term investment vehicle. Like you've mentioned Vanguard and Fidelity and iShares and these types of things, so right? All of them, they have super diversified vehicles. Get your first one hundred thousand, and then let's talk about adding a little spice to the story
0: here. So, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these optimize people get hung up right on some of these minor optimizations, and and I mean, I do these minor optimizations, but you don't start there, right? I mean, a lot of these optimizations are like a fraction of a percent improvement in let's say tax savings or something of that sort, but you know, those really become big numbers when you have, let's say, a million dollar portfolio, right? But if you have $10,000, you're trying to invest your first $10,000 or even first $1,000, you don't need to go into the weeds that deep to learn every single tax optimization strategy because it's gonna end up being just dollars that you're saving, which is, you know, so I would say, yeah, you definitely, you know, you can, you can start off small and then you get more and more advanced as your portfolio grows because now the payoff of these optimizations is a lot better, right? A half a percent on a million dollars improvement is a lot more than a half a percent improvement on a thousand dollars, right? So, yep. so I, I hear, yeah, I think it's really easy to get hung up on some of these things and the industry spends millions of dollars on marketing to make it all sound very complicated, right? So that you use their exactly. high fee advisors and their high fee mutual funds. So yeah, I gotta be on guard. So I'm, I'm really glad you wrote that book. I think people need it for sure. Yeah. Um, so last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Yeah, so my number one goal is, we'll continue getting top-notch guests for the Build With Canada show. You know, I definitely wanna remain at the top of the rankings there. So I wanna continue to be a, you know, a good resource for Canadians to use. And then, of course, to grow the Canadian Financial Summit. Like I said, I recently took that over. It's a big instrument in helping improve financial literacy in Canada. And so I do want to grow that as big as I possibly can. And it has a, have a positive impact. And yeah, so those are kind of my two big focus points for the awesome. coming year.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Sounds like you're gonna have your hands full.
0: That's right, that's sem- a lot, it's a lot more fun than that. Net- I know, I know. It's a lot more fun than Netflix, I t- I'm you. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. It's a fun you, challenge. <laughs> I'll tell you a
1: short story, which is people ask me how long I'm gonna, you know, when am I gonna retire? And when am I gonna stop working? And I say, well, let me tell you a story about my grandfather. My grandfather wrote a few different books and I have one of them. And in that book is, it's the first printing of this book. And in that book is a letter from the publisher and the publisher who's his friend, you know, and basically it says, dear Charlie, my grandfather's name, dear Charlie, you know, here's your latest book. I thought you'd like to see it. My grandfather was 87 or so at the time and living in Florida and in retirement. But when you look at the date on that, it was less than a week before my grandfather died. Mm. So My grandfather was able to see the fruits of his final book called The Outpost for the War of Empire, which is, you know, the British and the Americans and the French and all of that and the Indians in America. But for him to be able to see that just before he passed away, I always think to myself, he kind of worked up to his last days and Mm -hmm. I probably will. So I'm not going to go into semi-retirement, no way. All right. I think well, it's you, about
0: having the option to work on what you want to work on, right? As opposed to having to deal with the commute, having being told what you have to work on. I think that's yeah. what it's really about. It's not about not working, right? Because yep. work can be a lot of fun, even more fun than leisure, you know, depending on what you're working on, I would say.
1: Yep. That's why I talk in the book, and I always try to talk about the idea of financial independence. And that's mm-hmm. that we don't have to talk about retirement or this or that. Right. We just say, when are you going to hit financial independence? And when you do then you're not working because you have to work. You're working because you want to work as you are doing with what you are doing. Well, Mm -hmm. listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit My Worst Investment Ever. As we end, Cornell, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And you have now taken your worst investment ever and turned it into your best teaching moment.
0: Do you have any parting words for our audience? Sure, thanks. Yeah, so we already talked about considering doing yourself investing. One other piece I would add is to start using maybe a fee-for-service financial planner, or at least look into how your current advisor or financial planner is compensated because that's another very common trap I see people fall into where they feel that they're getting free advice or they feel like they're not really, you know, that they're all taken care of, but really that person could be getting a really hefty commission for recommending you certain products, right? And so you really want to start peeling back the onion and seeing, okay, how are they actually being compensated? If I'm not paying them directly, like I do a lawyer or an accountant, then they're getting paid in another way. And is there a conflict of interest when it comes to them recommending me something? Because maybe the recommendation is not what's right for me, it's what's right for them, because they're going to get a promotion or a bonus or commission, et cetera. So that's a really another big point I think people have to, I would say, investigate for themselves.
1: Got it. That's great parting words. And I would add on to that, that the CFA Institute, after the financial crisis, came up with the investors' rights, 10 of them. And one of them is that, you know, you have a right to understand the fees that you're being charged and to ask if you do not. And so don't be afraid for anybody out there to ask your advisor, please explain to me exactly how you're being paid. And if they explain it in a way that's unclear, don't be afraid to ask, I didn't understand that. Could you explain that more clearly? And you have a right to do that. And so thank you for raising that and helping people remember that we all have a right to ask those types of questions. So fantastic Mm -hmm. parting words. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.